Hey, Wonderfuls, welcome to episode 492 of the JV Club with my guest, Claire Fallon. Surprise! It's the other half of the Love to See This podcast, which of course also features Emma Gray, last week's guest. Claire also, along with Emma, also has Substack stuff going on. There's a lot to dive into and appreciate about Claire. We'll talk about it further in the episode. I hope everyone is doing well, and I'll tell you what, I'll talk to you next week. Deal? Yeah, so I just I was just talking to your co-host. Uh, I realized that while we did talk about the podcast and about like all the stuff that you guys do together, I asked her zero questions about you <laughs> because I knew I was going to be talking to you. Well, that gives us something like, to I still talk front, about. Yeah, I could have front loaded a little bit to be like, so why don't you do, like give me a great question to ask Claire that she'd never expect me to ask. <laughs> I absolutely neglected to do that. That is something it was a gross oversight on my part and I regret it. No, I think that's good. She also like I feel like we know each other too well at this point that uh-huh. it's almost like ask me a great question about yourself. It's like, I don't know. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's too, it's too close to me to see it clearly. It's too close to me. Exactly. Um, how long have you guys been doing, uh, well, working together? Because I know you're both. Did you yeah. meet through HuffPo? Like, yeah, did we did. Okay. I'm trying to think. I guess we both started at HuffPost in 2011. And then Got we it. started the podcast about four years later. But we okay. didn't know each other super well when we started the podcast together. So that Got was it. really when we became closer. Got it. I hear a sound. Sorry. I'm just making sure. Oh, God. It sounds a little echoey. Is that possible? <laughs> it's certainly possible. Like, we went through this with our engineer yeah. for the podcast, and in the end, we just sort of gave up, and they just uh-huh. <laughs> tried to remove it and post every Great. time. Great. And when we did the know. when the exorcist came, was that, like, what kind of conversation <laughs> was that like? It was actually really comfortable for me as a child of Catholic. I was like, oh, this should work. And it was very good. surprising that uh-huh. it wasn't demons. <laughs> it was very surprising that it wasn't demons. An autobiography by Claire <laughs> You normally think it's probably demons. Of course you do. Did you, so you did, like, did you fully go to church, like, and get confirmed? I don't oh, know. Yeah. I, I don't know that much about. I mean, I feel like I should because it's okay. Is that the same as like, like a quinceanera? I mean, that's a different (laughs) kind. Like, is there, but is there like a 15 year old thing outside Uh, of like? It happens a little earlier. So um, eighth grade, I think is when I got confirmed or seventh grade. Um, So when you're just like in adolescence, basically, it's supposed to be like first communion happens when you're around seven and that's. In theory, when you're an adult joining the church, that's how Mormon the Mormon church is. You can't get baptized until you're seven, because when you're seven, that's when you know it is the truth. The age of and you wouldn't just do it because your parents expected you to. Yeah. (laughs) Or maybe you're eight. Maybe you're eight. Yeah. Seven, eight. That's when you're Uh you're really your adult self. But yeah, confirmation is supposed to be you now truly as an adult because you're 12. Uh-huh. completely choosing the church of your own volition, which is why I know so <sighs> many people who are confirmed as Catholics who then turned 18 and were like, I don't want to be Catholic anymore. <laughs> for sure. For sure. <laughs> if we were honest with ourselves, 18 and leaving the house, if if, if applicable, feels like a more honest way of uh, celebrating and embracing a religion. But yeah, 
that's less convenient <laughs> for keeping the roles robust. I think. Exactly. Did you believe believe or were you just like that was something your family did and you didn't even think about it kind of thing? Yeah, I really believed. I was a very passionate Catholic as a kid. My, I mean, I, I think I kind of worried my dad, who was the Catholic in the family. My mom grew up Presbyterian, and she converted or started going to Catholic church when we, they started a family. My dad grew up Catholic in New Jersey, teaches at Notre Dame. Like, I grew up in a very okay. Catholic setting, and even my dad was like, you're being a little too Catholic. Like, it's really not so much about all of these terrible social positions. And like, I'm concerned that you're going really hard on abortion being bad. Oh, that kind no. of doesn't seem like where I want yeah. you to go with this. But I, I was very dogmatic because, you know, huh. you're in Catholic school. You're taking these, these these things in and you're like, well, if it's the truth, I have to just embrace it and not back away from the difficult parts. Uh-huh. And my dad was constantly trying to be like, okay, well, what if we just focused a little bit less on that stuff and more on like community and like helping the poor? Yeah. And uh, I think that the fact that I went so hard as a as an adolescent is probably yeah. <laughs> probably contributed to to me not wanting to stay in the church once I yeah. got a little older. That's so interesting. I Have you had conversations with your dad where, like, I wonder, like, did his relationship to his own beliefs, like, what, like, run through the filter of seeing the dogmatic tiny daughter? I wonder if he was like, maybe I need to rethink, maybe we should, like, not in a way where he gets more, like, committed, but that he himself is, like, less committed because he's like, oh, I don't. This is, I'm not comfortable with my daughter being this, you know? <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know. We haven't had uh, a really in-depth conversation about it. He still is religious. I have two brothers. None of us are religious now. Yeah. And uh, my stepmom is, uh, is not Catholic. She is um, Episcop- uh, Episcopalian. And so I think they have a more sort of fluid understanding uh, in the household now of observing religion than when I was growing up. But yeah. uh, we don't really talk about it. I know that it's sad for my dad that we all oh, kind yeah. of saw the worst, I guess, in the church mm. and and backed away from it so much because he grew up Catholic and then made a very conscious decision, I think, to just sort of focus on the parts that he did love about the faith and sort of make his own, um, Mm -hmm. you know, the cafeteria Catholic. He's like, yeah, I'm going to look at the parts that are really good and worth preserving and try to raise my kids in that mold. And we were like, but what about that stuff over there? We hate it. And we ran away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's always interesting. Where did you guys uh, grow up? Did you go to Catholic school like as a teenager Mm -hmm. too, like Catholic yeah, uh, I mean, my dad has been teaching at Notre Dame since before I was born. So we all were born in South Bend, Indiana, and grew up there, went to Catholic school, and I went to Catholic school through high school. Um, okay. Yeah, so it was pretty, you know, religion class every semester. <laughs> and when, religion class is, I think I've asked this before, and I can't, I can't remember, but religion class in that context is like Catholic Yes. religious study. It's not like I have religion, therefore I'm also learning about Buddhism and no. yeah. <laughs> no. No, it's it's very much like oh this this semester we're learning about Catholic social teaching and this semester we're learning about Catholic, you know, 
morality teachings and were learning about the New Testament through a Catholic lens. Like it was always with the goal of kind of shaping us into people who are knowledgeable Catholic warriors, like people who are going to kind of go out into the world and not only live our lives as Catholics, but be good advocates for Mm -hmm. Catholic teachings. Like morality class was basically just teaching kids how to argue to people that saying that abortion is a personal choice is like comparing killing babies to liking chocolate ice cream. Like it was very much giving you these little templates for how to argue with the world. Yeah. As a Catholic. And so you, and you espouse that stuff pretty completely even in high school or you were, is that when you were drifting? I was, I would say that I was always a, I always have been an argumentative person and so I was always very engaged in religious classes, um, often in a combative way, uh-huh. trying to poke holes in things. But yeah. at the same time, you know, I wanted to buy into a lot mm. of it. And so I would argue, but I would also be like, but this is what the Lord says. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I have doubt, but I also have faith. Yeah. Um, and the balance of that just started to shift the older I got, I think. Got it. Yeah, the cognitive dissonance that many of us, like you experience it, you know, religion is a great example because it's sort of a, you know, checks all the boxes example, but it's so, it happens all the time with all kinds of different things where our brains are trying to be peaceful about something or make something make sense that, because we we want it to make sense or we need it to make sense or make it not make sense because that's, you know, that aligns better with like whatever our guts are telling us and, and all of that. But um, was it a, was it a public school or was, I mean, sorry, was it a uh, co-ed or was it? It was co-ed. Yes. I think my school had been single sex separated years before. Okay. uh, And some teachers had been there at the time, like had only taught the boys. Yeah. um, But it had been co-ed for some time. And so, yeah, I was in all co-ed classes. Okay. And do all cap, I guess, no, Okay, I was trying to think because my mom taught at a Catholic school for a minute. I was trying to oh, remember really? if they wore uniforms. I don't think they wore uniforms. So I guess you don't always wear uniforms at a Catholic school. That's interesting. Yeah. Maybe. We we did wear uniforms. I'm trying to think. There were there were a lot of Catholic schools in my town. Another day was like it would make sense. The yeah. Catholic University. So much yeah. Catholicism. I truly thought that Catholics were like the majority faith in the US for most of uh-huh. my childhood. Sure. Um and you there would. were a lot of uniforms. I we were, they were sort of modified. They were just like polo shirts in the school mm-hmm. colors, khakis. Like it was pretty loose, you know, like some girls would come to school and like hip hugger, like low rise hip huggers and like a little polo shirt from Aeropostale uh-huh. and that they could kind <laughs> of like sort of tuck in if a teacher was yeah. coming by, yeah. you know, or you could just wear something. I was always wearing like baggy shirts because I was a nerd. Sure. Yeah. All my clothes were oh yeah, yeah, so baggy. <laughs> So, so baggy. Yeah. Which kind of, I, it's not so dissimilar from how I dress now, but. It, now it, it's cool, were, though. I yeah. really feel like, I don't know, I'm 34. That time when, when you know, 34-year-olds now, when we were tweens and teenagers, uh-huh. rough yeah. time to be uh-huh. dressing yourself. A <laughs> lot of exposed midriff. So much midriff. Pants so much that midriff. feel like they're falling off all the yeah. time because they're so low. Butt crack pants. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. No, it was it was rough. Some of that. Yeah. Again, some of that is 
still around. I was in, I mean, I'm going to sound like an old lady and I just have to lean into that, but I was in Charleston for a wedding last weekend and uh, we were walking around We where our Airbnb was, was very near like King Street and one of the universities. And we were wandering around looking at spooky old houses uh, at like 11 o'clock at night, still on West Coast time. Like, whoa, I'm so awake. It's 11. This is amazing. And we were passing all of these kids who were partying and almost to a girl, Everyone we saw, not connected to one another, had some iteration of a black halter, like some iteration, like it was either a tube or it was a short like tank, but one sleeve or it was a tank, but a halter or it had one long sleeve and no other sleeve and was a halter. They were all halters and they were all black to the point where I was like. I can't, I'm not going to be that person. I mean, I can't, I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm like aware enough that I'm not going to pull one of them aside and be like, is this a theme night? Like what's happening? <laughs> but we were genuinely excited when we saw some, a girl wearing something different and it was a white halter top. Halter tops are the big halter thing tops. now? I can't. Halter, nothing but them. And it, by the way, it was chilly. It's October in Charleston. Oh. It was like chilly. I, I couldn't, I was like, nothing was that uniform when I was a teenager. And I'm tr- hard pressed to think of anything being that uniform in any other era of being a teenager. But like these youngsters and they're college kids, so they're not even that young. <laughs> Everyone was wearing a halter top. Maybe it was some kind of a theme because I'm not kidding you. And it was like traversing many, many blocks, like just different groups. Some just coming out of one place, some kind of. So like it doesn't is seem like it makes sense what... to be like it's black halter top night. Is that just like what other generations look like to us? Like if if we had been like walking past some right. older people back then, what if they would they have found something else to fixate on that we all look exactly Maybe. the same. I love thinking about this stuff and I love this conversation. I could say maybe, but it, a black halter is so specific. Yeah. I like, mean, it's it's, like, it's the return it's so of the going specific. out top, right? Yes. It was very much a going out top. <sighs> very much a going out top. I don't um, miss the going out top. I can't endorse yeah. the return. You know what the going out top turned into for me is just audition tops like that. Like (laughs) one replaced the other. It was like, oh, I don't want to have to like now I don't have to have going out tops. Don't give a shit. But I do have to go ahead and get some like push up bras and some like tight shirts for auditions. So this is basically just a new career version. of going. So is an is an audition top just like the same genre, like something that's sort of dressy and sexy? I kind of when I when I was in my early no, when I was in my mid 20s and like that's what I was like, that's when I moved to L.A. and that's what I was auditioning for, because invariably like those were the parts that I was getting called for. Um, For sure. I there was like. My my I my uniform was so far away from how I normally dress that like, you know, there was a section in my closet of like, these are all the clothes for the roles I will invariably call that be called out for. They do not get touched unless it is for that. And like it's but it was there night and day different night and day different. (gasps) That's so funny. I've never thought about what it would have to actually be like to to present yourself in such a specific way. Yeah. And essentially a job interview. Like every job interview yeah. is sort of about presenting yourself in a specific way. Absolutely. But you can you and can get you're a going little for a job interview room. every other day. <laughs> yeah. You have a lot of them. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. Did you ever put yourself through that? Or you stayed on the kind of writing side? And... Oh yeah. No, I I haven't auditioned for anything since college. I had a very brief and glorious <laughs> acting career. <laughs> Um, no, my... Where did you go to school? Did, did you go to Notre Dame? And was it expected for you to go to Notre Dame? Uh, no, no and no. I think I wanted to go to Notre Dame growing up. 
um, because it was what I knew and I loved it. And my dad was always like, you don't need to go to Notre Dame. Like, get out of this town, get out of, you know, the Catholic schooling system a little bit, get some Mm. some fresh things into your brain. And, you know, he encouraged us to apply to a lot of schools. I ended up going to Princeton, which is where my dad went. Oh, okay. And so I was uh, a legacy. um, Yeah. And I, I liked it there a lot. Um, but yeah, stuff like drama that in high school I was very good at, like so much more competitive in college. It turns yeah. out there are a lot of like really talented performers who go to Princeton. So that brought an end to a lot of my extracurricular interests. But um, uh-huh. yeah, so I did like the freshman one act plays or something. And that was that was the end. Um uh-huh. And then I moved to I moved to New York after graduation with like my little um, publishing interview capsule. You know, I ha- I wanted to work in book publishing. I had like pencil skirt. My stepmom got me like two little like business dresses for uh-huh. for my new career life. And then I ended up the one job I actually got was at HuffPost, and I wore my little pencil skirt there to my interview, and I like clicked in to the cavernous like loft space filled yeah. with people wearing flannel and jeans and they were like what are you doing <laughs> do you know where you are yeah that's amazing yeah so my business clothes did not get very much use I, and then I yeah I had to get a whole new word like I never really dressed that way even in college yeah you know the flannels the jeans like the sweaters Um, And I really did kind of, yeah, you take on that persona a little bit to fit in to to where your professional life lives. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a break. I will be back after a word from our wonderful buddies at Maximum Fun. Hi, I'm Jackie Cation. Hello, I'm Lori Kilmerton. We do a podcast called The Jackie and Lori Show, and you could listen to it anytime you want it because there's hundreds of episodes yeah i mean we've been doing comedy forever and we should both quit so why don't you listen up <laughs> before we leave this not only terrible business but this awful world and find out why we can't <laughs> because we love it so <laughs> jackie and Lori show every week here on maximumfun.org What was the what was the um, end game of like working in book publishing? Oh gosh, well, if you if you knew what it was, I don't know because <laughs> that seems like a very like exactly how yeah. you described it and kind of having the capsule like that feels very like okay. Did you want to sort of be in that world and have the connection so that you could publish your own writing, or did you want to be like an editor, or, like head of a publishing? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's it's funny. I think of publishing as just being an editor. Like that's clearly how I like. I don't even think of the other parts of it. Um, Got it. I, yeah, I was. I've always been like a huge reader. My dad is an English professor. My mom had a graduate degree in English. My older brother is an English professor. The only reason that I didn't try to be an English professor is, I don't know if you know about this, but there's like a huge crisis in academia and you can't get a job anymore. And so my brother was like, don't do it. Don't go to grad school. It's the worst. And I was like book publishing. Like I I still just wanted to work on people's writing and making people's writing better. I wanted to read a lot of great fiction 
And so I wanted to be an editor of like literary fiction. And no one told me this, but publishing was also not doing great. And there were just not really any jobs. Yeah. Uh, But there was for the specific moment, this explosion in digital media jobs Mm -hmm. (laughs) that went away. It was a very short lived uh moment. And I just somehow snuck into that wave. And that's where I stayed. (laughs) So I didn't ask, I didn't ask uh, Emma this, but like, were you, I mean, were you aware of like the HuffPost Live? Well, I mean, you guys were, were you going into that office? Like when HuffPost Live was launching in New York and LA? That was, because we that were, was, we were already there. Because I remember when it was. No, I know. That's what I'm asked. saying. Like, yeah. were you, you would already have been there because yeah. I went and worked there in like 2012, I think. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I was there. So did it's we, very did funny. Did we all to work together? <laughs> well, I mean, I was part of the West Coast launch and like, yeah, you know, for nine months I worked towards like making it live, and then it went live, and then we were doing it, and like we ended up having to take over once during like the hurricane because you guys couldn't even go to work, and oh, somehow yeah. so we had to like run for like eighteen hours or something. There was some crazy thing where we were like, "Oh shit, this is what it's like to have to get started at like three in the morning <laughs> our time." Like it was insane. Oh my god, but that was such. Yeah, it was crazy. That like I was there for like the launch of HuffPo. HuffPost Live. And then, you know, that was the same year as like the shadow conventions and like the reelection of Obama and Hurricane Sandy and Sandy Hook shootings. And like there was this condensed amount of shit that happened in a very short period of time. And I was like, I got to get out of here. (laughs) This is way too hard. (laughs) I think you made a good decision. I mean, I've just now I have so many questions about what it was. I mean, were you like producing? Were you on air? I was on air. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would. It would be like each one of the hosts had, you know, blocks of time, and like we would trade off, and uh, we each would have a producer, and you know, we would either sign on to be someone else's pitch, like that we liked, um, or we would pitch our own and then be assigned a producer, and you know, go through the whole rigmarole of like finding the guests that would be both in studio and, you know, on like Google chat or whatever, or (laughs) Skype, you know? And uh, yeah, you know, we just like did it. We hunkered down and did it. And so there's every possibility because a lot of the stuff we were pulling was from, by the way, that was the first time I ever found out what a vertical was. And now it seems like everyone knows, but just so everyone knows, a vertical is like, what's the, you know, on the on the menu bar of something like HuffPost, like what's the, is it religion? Is it science? Is it finance? Is it that? That's what a vertical is. Yeah. I. That's how much I wasn't a journalist is like I came in, got I got court, I got courted headhunted like brought in and I was like what's a vertical that everyone keeps talking about verticals what can I expect of that but we definitely were like writing people you know and saying like this is such a great piece like I'd love to you know report further on it and like have a conversation that sort of comes off of this topic that you've written about and this thing that you've discovered or whatever so there's every possibility that you know you wrote an article that that my producer and I are like let's build a conversation around this (laughs) that's crazy I Oh, my God. That really brings me back. I don't think about HuffPost Live very often anymore, but what a chaotic, uh-huh. weird moment. Because then, like, I I feel like that was actually early in the wave of places trying to pivot to, like, yeah. nonstop oh, yeah. streaming news. And, like, it's yeah. basically none of it is going well, but they keep uh-huh. trying. HuffPost <laughs> yeah. was, like, the first to prove that it probably shouldn't be done. Uh-huh. Um, but there, <laughs> there was some good stuff. I was a blog editor at that point, so I was editing other people's work, which is... I think one reason that I never really had much interaction with it directly, like definitely blogs got, got featured, but I was just sort of sure. churning through them. Sure. <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't um, 
the person who would be dealing with a lot of that directly. But yeah. Oh, gosh, what an era. <laughs> what an era in HuffPost history. <laughs> in TV history. <laughs> so what did okay so when you when did you leave wait you're still there no no we both left okay. we both yeah. got laid we off at the same time so we both got laid off in early 2021 yeah yeah and how have you been feeling I'm sure people can hear about this on the podcast as yeah. well. I just want to reassure people that they can. <laughs> I'm fine. I'm fine. Yeah. Uh, no, we'd both been there for a decade at that point and yeah. had many good times. And I think we're ready to move on professionally. But... I've done my best work when my job has been taken from me for one reason <laughs> or another. Like, otherwise, I'll just be like, I can make this work forever. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, I, I felt like it was hard to leave because I had gone through fallow times and then things yeah. had started getting better again. And so I always just wanted to wait for the next good thing to happen. Sure. But sometimes you just need a little kick in the rear. Get that little push. Fly exactly. the, the coop, flee the nest. Yeah. I just, it's it's bittersweet still because my I did a lot of writing at HuffPost. And I had some editors I really loved. And I'm just not good at freelancing. And I don't yeah. know how to make writing part of my life now and so I do miss it but yeah it was time to go yeah I it's well and you know it hasn't been that long so whatever relationship you build with writing can take whatever shape and take as long as you know you want it to um my partner's a writer and I feel like you know at any given point in the year he runs the full cycle of like I'm never writing again (laughs) all I ever want to do is write I have to write I'm making myself write this is good for me you know what I mean? Like, yeah. there's like, it's such a, it's such a like, uh, possibly toxic relationship. But I think like, I, like there, I don't know very many people who have a relationship with writing that isn't complex in oh, some way. Writing is, I think, the art form that people have the most toxic relationship with. And yeah. I'm always trying to figure out why. Like, I think that like painters seem to generally enjoy painting, and sculptors uh-huh. generally enjoy sculpting. <laughs> Writers are always just like the like I just hate writing uh-huh. and I have to do <laughs> it so and I'm weird. so glad I'm a writer but every step in this process makes me want to gouge my eyes yeah. out. <laughs> Why? It's so weird. Is it like it's, that? It's so weird. I think my current theory is that you just are too up close with your thoughts like you're not mm-hmm. transmuting it into right. another form in some way that's allows yeah. you some comfortable distance from it. You're just like why aren't my thoughts working? My thoughts need to be working better. And that's sure. like a very uncomfortable space. No, that's, uh, I think that's very well articulated and it makes, that would make a lot of sense. Were you, so I know you were um, enjoying drama when you were in high school. Were you enjoying writing? You, you said, you know, you obviously come from some writing DNA and um, were you like a great student? Were you restless? Like what were you like well, as a teenager? <laughs> uh, let's give me some compliments. Uh, no, I, <laughs> I, I never thought I was going to be a writer. I think it 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 always seemed to me as something that took a certain amount of, I guess, comfort with being in, like, publicly evaluated in the public eye. Mm. And I'm actually kind of shy. And um, I really liked the idea of editing because I would get to work with writing in a way that was more behind the scenes. And I sure. used to be a writing tutor. I loved helping people with their papers. Like that, that sounds really actually that's appeals to me also. It's not something I ever did, but Yeah. It's really it it's can be really satisfying to not just kind of diagnose what needs to be done in a piece of writing, but really kind of help nudge people to like get there on their own and see what they yeah. do with it. And 
So I never did you think about being well? Yeah, I guess we talked up. about the grad school thing and like going into academia. Yeah. But yeah, like there was a, there was a period at which you might have gone and been a professor or something. Yeah, I think yeah. that the kind of writing I always envisioned doing was like writing research, you know, basically English papers or research about <laughs> literature or like readers' reports. I never did like student newspaper. I didn't yeah. write fiction. I didn't feel like anything that I would have to say was really worth saying in a fiction sense. I don't didn't feel like I was creative in that yeah. way. And journalism just feels very invasive. Like, I actually still don't like interviewing people. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I, I don't like reporting. And I just said I don't I get I understand why you don't like interviewing people when I've done a podcast where I interview people for the last <laughs> 10 years. You're a very good interview. Like I me? actually when I do interviews still, I'm just like, it doesn't go well because it's not a role I'm comfortable in. I feel like you just really draw people out very naturally. Well, it's it, you, I think the difference is like if you're coming at it knowing you're not a journalist and you're coming at it as a conversation, there's a whole different set of rules that apply to an interview that is like I am interviewing someone there's probably going to be a printed version of this. Like I'm taking, I'm looking to say the least amount possible to get the best sound bites possible for the subject. Like it's a completely different, which is something that, you know, I've definitely like dialed back on my personality and like <laughs> leaned heavier into having a question and then trying to get the person to say as much as I could during HuffPost. But, um, you know, I don't think I could sustain that. Like I couldn't be Terry Gross, who's really good at saying very little. Like I know nothing about her. Um, but everyone feels like they know her still because she's been interviewing other people for so long, you know? Yeah, she's such a good listener. I, Yeah, that that really makes me feel almost more on display in a weird way. It's almost yeah. like if you're just yammering about yourself, it feels more protected than trying to express what you think about someone else to them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you can be sense. wrong, you know? <laughs> that makes sense. Ooh, that would be so, that would be so stressful. Like writing a piece about someone... I would be so bad at that about like, you know, well, I interviewed the prom queen and my like personal experience of that was that I found her to be extremely annoying. And da-da-da. But you're like, <laughs> I'm writing this piece. Like how much of that gets in there? Like how much, you know, for example, right. like um, what's her name? Oh, it's such a great like Mimi or Skipper or something like that who wrote that profile on Gwyneth Paltrow. She's like Taffy. really famous. Yeah, Taffy, Taffy. Professor Ackner. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, Profile Taffy. writing. Is... Sorry, I called you Skippy or Mimi. <laughs> but got that was so eviscerative, if yeah. that's a word, and so skillful. And it was like so incredibly uncomfortable because she also takes you with her to the degree where you're like, I feel like I'm in the room with her quietly judging Gwyneth as Gwyneth is blithely saying stuff. And like, while I may agree with everything Taffy writes, I still feel that horrible feeling of like, this is not maybe none of my business. I don't know. Like, I'm not sure this feels really mean. You know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. No, profile writing is terrifying to me because I I hate profiles that feel really um, pandery uh, yes. or like they're blowing smoke up the, you know, the ass of the subject or whatever but it's the only kind I think I would ever be able to write because I would feel so bad about yeah describing them in a way that didn't feel accurate to them in public but the only yeah yeah, the only ones you want to read are the ones that are kind of unsparing (laughs) and every kind of journalism that's combative in that way I'm like it has to be really combative 
and unsparing to be good, but I can't do that. I know. Totally. Totally. So I would only do bad versions of it. I'm getting squeamish just thinking about (laughs) it. I really am. I really am. Okay. So you, so even in high school, like you weren't writing, you weren't like writing fiction or poetry or like feeling like you were seen or identifying yourself through like going home and journaling or anything like that. No, and I've always been bad about keeping a journal. I had a live journal. I don't know if you ever did uh-huh, online journaling, uh-huh. but that was more just social media. That was a way to like let my friends know that I was, you know, going through some trauma or something so that they could leave supportive comments. Uh-huh. Um, no, I I was just a big reader. Like reading was really kind of my hobby, which is not really a hobby, but um my mom would always be yeah it is you know what it was the only one I had time for because I took a lot of AP classes and my mom was always trying to get me to make things you know to be like don't just read a book like write your own little story draw a picture to go with it she would try to get me to do these things over the summer when I had free time and I was just like I don't really have anything to say I just want to go to the library and check out 15 books Uh and just go to bed and they'll be Uh next to me over here and I'll just go right through them. And that was the way that I, that's why I think I, in my mind was more like, I'm going to be a scholar or an editor and not writing. Sure. Sure. I'm going to go back to this for just a second because it's interesting to me. And I I don't want you to feel speaking of like, I not wanting to feel someone to feel judged by, by someone else. Um, But there's something so interesting, you know, for somebody who doesn't come from academia, and I and this is also fresh in my mind because I was listening to Missing Pages, you know that um, podcast, yeah, um, which is very dishy. Like, okay, mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you all the things that happen in the you know in the publishing world that you yourself would never know. And don't worry, you're going to think it's pretty crazy. <laughs> um, and it's and it's it enjoyable. Some episodes are grossly different than others in terms of like their level of enjoyableness to me. But she talks a lot about the sort of like exclusivity of of publishing and kind of the the idea that you kind of do have to come from a great school, be able to afford to mm-hmm. kind of be put through your paces um, when you get into publishing. And just hearing you talk about even like what you imagined doing within academia seemed like so working class, upper class. Like, I don't know <laughs> if that makes sense, but like you're so like, you know what I mean? You're like, yeah. no, I'm just going to put my shoulder to the, you know, put my nose to the grindstone. Like I'm going to get in there and I'm going to be, of course, I'll be writing research papers. I'll be like, you're, you've really done it so that it sounds like you're like I just I work in the same small CPA office that my you know lower middle class dad did like it sounds so unglamorous and so humble for something that I have now been told I can only assume people of means who like do want to sort of have the the beautiful glamorous pencil skirt and sort of breeze through the New York office that has the view of Central Park in the fall (laughs) kind of thing. You know what I mean? So I just found that really interesting. That's funny. It's I mean, the reason that you have to be rich to do it is because you're not going to make any money. And (laughs) like when I started doing informational interviews about publishing, Everyone that I talked to looked at my resume and was like, oh, Ivy League, you're not going to have a problem. They didn't know how bad the job market had gotten since they got into the industry. But they were like, you're not going to have a problem. But do you have a trust fund or like, (laughs) how are you going to afford to live? And I was Uh like, oh, I don't know. I thought I would just like get a roommate and live in Queens Uh and like Uh never buy anything. That was sort of my plan. Um, But it is really hard. You know, I had friends in college who never even considered 
trying to work in publishing but would have wanted to because they had to help support their family, you know, people yeah. who really came from from impoverished backgrounds. And yeah. so even to not have to worry about that was, you know, made it possible for me to consider being like a lowly functionary right, in that right. field. But yeah, I really used to think of it that way. I was like, if I could just have a job at basically like a literary like think tank, you know, where uh-huh. I just had to like sit and like read books and write little essays about them and no one uh-huh. ever had to read them. That would be my uh-huh. dream job. <laughs> I just want to like get in there, do the work, turn in my reports and like not have to deal yeah. with whether people think it's good or, yeah. you know, any of the the attendant like, you know, s- social elements or yeah, yeah, just really treating it like you're a CPA, I guess. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> That's not really what it's like, I think. Yeah. I love that, though. No, there's something like very um, character in a children's book about that. Like, you know, she just she said and then and then the, there's a one pile here and one pile here and this pile gets smaller when this pile gets bigger. And yes, you know, she goes home and reads her book and <sighs> it's wonderful. That's how I remember my childhood. Just yeah. Fantasy. There you go. There you go. <laughs> oh, oh, it's time for a quick break. I will be back after a word from our friends at Maximum Fun. Hi, it's Jesse Thorne, the founder of Maximum Fun. I am breaking into this programming to say thank you to MaxFun's members. Your purchases in this year's post Fund Drive patch sale raised over $50,000 for Trans Lifeline. Maybe you already know about the good work that Trans Lifeline does. If you don't, they're a trans-run organization that offers direct emotional and financial support to trans people in crisis. If you want to learn more about the work Trans Lifeline does or support them further, go to translifeline.org. Thanks for supporting Maximum Fun. Thanks for supporting Trans Lifeline. And thanks for being awesome people who want to do good in the world. Um, Okay, I got to get into this MASH game with you. Um, Well, first of all, I have to start with three books that you can jump into and just be in the world that those books have created and those feelings that those books give you. Oh, gosh. You're not like reliving the, you know, page by page plot unless you want to be. Unless I, unless I just, yeah, unless I really want to. Um, I'm just like looking at one of I know, my bookshelves as if the answer is there. It, and, like, and it might be. Or <laughs> if there's like be. a book, there might be like something that you know you read. I mean, it, when yeah. I think about stuff I read now, is there something that will shine for me the same way like stuff that I loved when I was younger that I really did just read over and over and over and over like scripture? Like, yeah, feel free to lean back on that if you, if I do helpful. always go back to children's stuff. Yeah. The, the first thing that comes to mind is Ella Enchanted. Which was, yeah. ugh, I just loved that book growing up so much. Perfect, perfect. I love like a cozy, a cozy fantasy, mm. um, which I think is why people love Harry Potter. I think at its base, yes. it is a cozy fantasy, and then it has yes. also a lot of like monsters and scary stuff. But like then yeah. you get into like the dorm, and everyone's wearing their little sweaters. Yeah, it's or cozy. Ron's house. Yeah, yeah, and you do a little spell, and it works. Mm-hmm. Um. That's so, a great point. yeah. So if I'm being totally honest, probably Harry Potter, even though yeah. I don't really do Harry Potter anymore. Yeah. Given what's no, you're not J.K. Rowling's been up to. You're not the only one. Um, the I've never heard the term cozy fantasy, but it's I completely agree. 
I feel like that's just... I love a cozy mystery, so <laughs> I'm like... Ooh, I actually used to intern for a publisher that published a ton of cozy mysteries, which is how I learned about them. Such a fascinating genre. Yeah. It's like murder, I mean, I but in a say, cute like, way. No, for sure. And I think this sort of like modern version of that, there are really only two authors that I can think of that like I actually really enjoy that I would consider to be a cozy mystery, Louise Penny being one of them. Mm. But like those are still like absolutely extremely cozy. But like they're not they're also not turning away from like real life extremely upsetting and very difficult issues. Yeah. Opposed to like something that might be a, a little more quaint. Like if people think of a cozy mystery as like straight up murder she wrote or just straight up like a cute like Miss Marple or something. Yeah. That's like a product of its time. That's not really accurate to describe, you know a place where people are still talking about like genocides and stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That genocide is not the most cozy, but uh-huh. they can coexist. They can coexist. Yes, they can. They can. Okay. I've got Ella. I've got uh, Harry. Uh, what's number three for you? Oh gosh. I'm going to say probably Anne of Green Gables. Yeah. Come on. Are you kidding yeah. me? I'm like Austin, Anna Green Gables. They're both very basic choices, but (sighs) but there's just when someone gives you the gift of Anna Green Gables when you're little, it's like it is like you've given me so much more than a book. Yeah, I think childhood is the time when, and that's why I picked all children's books. When I used to just like imagine that I was a character in the book for months after I discovered the book and I used to truly like put on my like jumper dress and be like I'm Anne and I'm picking apples I walked around my neighborhood in like central Tucson Arizona with like (laughs) old like little heeled boots that I got in like a vintage store could not be further from Prince Edward Island (laughs) could not be further in every way Oh, beautiful choice. Beautiful choice. Okay. Let's do three place, real places in the world that you would love to have a vacation home. And that doesn't mean it can't be in a city, mind you, um, but that we can, we'll just be able to sort of teleport you there. So you don't have to worry about the travel. Definitely like a house in like coastal New England, like a big rambling. Can't promise that it's mash mansion, apartment, shack or house. You might have to go to shack. Uh, it's a, it's it's in one of these like coastal New England towns, and yep. all of my all of my picks are going to be walkable environments because Great. I want a walkable environment. So yes, love it. Quaint little New England coastal town. Great Paris. Yes, I mean it has to be has to be on the list. And I'm gonna have to say Florence. Oh, great. These are just charming locations from my one European vacation that I want to go back to. (laughs) We got to get you. We got to get you back. Uh, (laughs) No, these are great. I would do each and every one of these for sure. Um, Okay, next one. Let's do three foods that in this reality either, you know, they feel ecologically irresponsible or you're allergic or, you know, you just can't eat. Uh, I will tell you that what Emma was most excited about and ended up getting was uh, sour candy forever without ever scraping the roof of your mouth. Um, so oh. you can do, you know, you can do sugar. You can do any anything that you would love to have the snap of your finger if there was zero negative uh, impact on you or anyone else. That is And in this world, all brilliant. things are equal. <laughs> that is a really that's a really good one. Uh, um, I've been thinking about this. I, I think I would have to do cheeseburgers. I yeah. do eat them, but I would love to eat as many of them as I wanted guilt-free and without any health effects. Great. Um, Perfect. 
Instead, I feel like I probably am going to have to stop eating them at some point, and that makes uh-huh. me sad. Um, there is a place where uh, my husband and I went a couple times in Rhode Island, near where Taylor Swift's mansion is, I think. Perfect. Hill. And there's a sandwich shop there where we got sandwiches that sounded pretty basic, like, you know, deli meats and like sprouts yeah. and stuff. Best sandwich I've ever had, and I Love think about it these all the stories. time still. Love that perfect sandwich, Ugh. Rhode Island sandwich. I can't even I say like what that. was so good about it. I'm thinking back. The bread wasn't even exceptional. I don't know. It was just yeah. so good. I don't know. I mean, I definitely have stuff like that where yeah. if I was pressed, maybe I could put it into a context where like I was outside and the air felt this and then maybe those other things were factors. But that what it boils down to is like a memory of the best thing you ever had, whether or not it was like that spectacular. So I totally yeah. get it. This is my favorite thing about this uh, category is is stuff like the Rhode Island sandwich. So bravo. Such a good sandwich. So <laughs> I think of Taylor Swift getting to have one whenever she wants. Um, That's right. Like right next door. Um, so I think the last one has to be like a really rich chocolate cake with whipped oh, sure. top, like a whipped Ooh, cream, like yes, a rich indeed. whipped, like maybe mascarpone whipped cream. Oh, yes. Because it's so yes. rich. You can only really enjoy a few bites of it. But what if you can yeah. just keep going and it was yes. still good? This is what I'm saying. Brilliant. Brilliant. Okay, perfect. Uh, You spoke of your wonderful husband. All due respect to him. This (laughs) is a mash game. There is going to be some romance. This could be short term, long term, any person, any era, fictional, real, whatever you want. Three people. Okay. So I think it's going to be, if you've seen the movie Penelope, Mm -hmm. uh, definitely Johnny from Penelope, James McAvoy. Um, (laughs) also a fictional world I would love to inhabit Um, yeah I'm gonna say uh, so another Ellen Montgomery book that I love is called The Blue Castle oh sure yeah Yeah. Barney Snaith is kind of this like mysterious outsider who lives outside of town in a beautiful house and Valancey, the heroine, is like a spinster at 29 and she thinks she's going to die that year. And so she asks him to marry her as like a as like a gift because she yeah. just wants to be married to him and he agrees. And then they fall in love. It's and, great. It's a great book. Oh, I love it. I love that you picked Barney. That's yeah, definitely absolutely Barney. perfect. He's like, I, I do tend, I think see, I tend to gravitate towards men who just like love weirdos. Um, uh-huh. yes. I guess I have nothing like a wrong deeply, with that. Yeah, exactly. I have a deeply ingrained sense that like I'm too weird to love. And so I like nothing mm. is more appealing to me than a, a man who loves a weird woman in a work yeah. of fiction. What if you're like, and then finally, what's his name who plays Wednesday Adams boyfriend in Adams Family? <laughs> <laughs> I've never Another seen Christina the Adams Ricci Family. Family. I... He sounds great. I do love both of those live action movies. I love that <laughs> cast. Like Christina, mwah, always. Angelica Houston plays Morticia. Raul Julia, yes. R.I.P. plays Gomez. Like Christopher Lloyd plays Uncle Fester. They're like genuine. Christine Baranski is in it. They're like genuinely funny. Like they're Star-sided. very darkly funny. I recommend. I recommend that you watch the first one. See what you think. I really should. I mean, I've I've already got the Christina Ricci as a love interest. Like that's very important to me. Clearly, yes, yes. Um, I should watch it. 
I'm like a scaredy cat. So anything that's like Halloween it's adjacent. It's so it's, not scary. I'm sure but, it's not. Yeah. I don't know why. <laughs> I'm just like, it's Halloween. I can't watch it. Um, there are scary people in it. Yeah. Uh, th- this has kept me from so but many good things in my life. But their baby has a mustache. Aww. I guess that's, in, is that the second one? I can't tell. The, those two movies flow together like they might as well be one movie. So I couldn't tell you which is which, but <laughs> recommend. Recommend. Okay. Uh, I'm going to have to look into that. Um, okay. Again, looking at the bookshelf to see if yep. it jogs anything in my memory whatsoever. I mean, you said Jane Austen. Again, like, there's a oh. reason that she's so extraordinary, which is that, you know, she was writing when we weren't hearing much from women and, like, writing stories about strong women. Like, I, I don't have any problem with, you know what I mean? Like, I understand. I understand the impulse to be like, I better be as obscure as possible. But, like, <laughs> at the same time, like... I was telling Emma uh, that I just watched the on a plane. I was like, the only movie of like 200, which in my mind, I was like, oh, my God, if you told me 10 years ago that I would be like a snob about there being 200 movies to choose from on a Delta flight and being like, nothing here suits me. I don't want any of this. (laughs) Like, God, you're so entitled. Um, But I was like, I will watch this. Not the hugest Kira Knightley fan. Bless her. Um, Shot my cup of tea. But. It was a really, it's a really fun movie. Pre- that Pride and Prejudice oh, is yeah. very fun. I mean, it's just, they can't all be the BBC They can't version. The BBC. And honestly, that's too long to watch on a flight. So sometimes the Kira Knightley exactly. one just it's, really it was perfect. It was a perfect length for, yeah, it was, it was. Um, if I'm going to do Austin, I think I might actually have to do like a Frederick Wentworth, which. Mm-hmm. Wait, which one is he from? He's from Persuasion. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I like that. And then, you know. Well, I, in my mind, I've conflated the Emma Thompson movie with the book to the point now where I am like, I do love Hugh Grant's character that she ends up with in that. I think that's Sense and Sensibility. Or Colonel Brandon. That is Sense and Sensibility. Yeah. Um, they all do kind of blend together. So but Alan Rickman There's a new Dakota is, yeah. Johnson persuasion, which I don't love. Um, I, can't, I find it very hard to imagine her in a role like that. That's yeah, very it is, hard for me to imagine. It's not any easier once you've seen it. Very, <laughs> very so hard. <laughs> Let me, again, put this as delicately as I can. It's very hard for me to imagine yeah, that. It doesn't, it doesn't quite land, but yeah, it reminded me, it, and then I reread Persuasion, that Persuasion okay, is one Wentworth. of Austin's great love, sto- love it's stories. It's a wonderful story. And that Anne is both one of her less, like, overt, like, kind of beauties, right. but also um, is in one of her more sort of equal seeming partnerships like Wentworth really just seems like her like he was her best friend and like yeah they shared a sense of humor and they really enjoy each other and he just seems cool oh great no that's a great choice great 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 uh okay next one let's do three let's do three authors that you uh can just sort of spend an afternoon with and that can mean that you like get the curiosity satisfied of like oh that person really was a prick um (laughs) Or, you know, it can be like, wow, I really got like some insight into whether it's, you know, sort of being a fly on the wall, like watching that person engage with other people in a cafe or, you know, sort of seeing what their home life was like or whatever. But three authors you have that sort of curiosity about, like, I wish I could see them in real life for an afternoon in some capacity. And you can engage with them if you want. (laughs) Can I call to them from the corner? Uh (laughs) Um. I'm watching you. Um, oh gosh, I should, I should do, I should do 
older authors because an interesting thing about HuffPost is that my job there is that I did used to get to interview authors, mm-hmm. which was pretty cool. So I did meet some pretty amazing authors during that time. But that's awesome. You gotta you gotta go for the unattainable here. So yes, I agree. I definitely agree. Yeah, I'm gonna say Virginia Woolf. Great. I think she would be terrifying. I might do more observation. Yeah. Um, of her. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, I think Toni Morrison. Oh yeah. Um, great. Yes. I I still have haven't read all of her books, so I should start there. But I just I think she she also like existed in a space that is very interesting to me in the world of publishing. Absolutely. And, like, I would just Absolutely. love to hear everything about her life. Yes. Um. I'm going to say I would love to talk to someone who was like very early in the like novel writing era, like someone like Madame de Lafayette or something mm-hmm, who wrote Le Princesse mm-hmm. de Clave, like someone who was kind of innovating the form. Yeah. I think would be so fascinating. And also Princess de Clave is such a fascinating like social novel, which is a, such a fun gossipy form and I think she is probably a huge gossip oh absolutely um, okay great uh, next category let's do uh, three alternate careers like alternate universe careers like we'll just throw you in you'll be an expert you'll be fantastic ooh um, I've always uh, <laughs> wanted since I was little to build miniatures and girl I just would love to like work for a museum or something, but my job is to build little historical reconstruction miniatures of like a Victorian house with like, you know, the cut through and then you yeah. see the little chairs and everything. Like the thorn rooms. Yes. Have you been to the thorn rooms? In no, Chicago? but I'm familiar. I need you to get on your computer, buy a plane ticket, find a hotel. There's plenty of them around. Get to that art institute. You got to get to the thorn rooms immediately. I, it's going to make me sad that that's not my job. Oh, my God. It makes me sad, but like it is so worth it. I love them so much. Uh, I couldn't really have said to, anything uh, better. Yes. I literally have right now like open in my windows in on my phone. Um, I will read to you very quickly. I have this open. <laughs> such a like crummy, like the world's first website website that is called uh, na- its name. The organization is name and it's National Association of Miniature Enthusiasts. <laughs> what? I need And it's this. just like the oldest. It's just like it really looks like someone, you know, that was like, but also like it might it must have been built somewhat recently. But it really is just like a horrible like doesn't function on mo- on mobile like it's just terrible in fact right now it's not even loading which is very sad but yeah oh name national association of miniature Enth- enthusiasts uh oh, PO yeah. box 69 carmel indiana it's so GeoCities. oh carmel <gasps> yeah i <laughs> indiana it's all roads point back to indiana see is it that is it not that far <laughs> it's kind of it just like, it's a few yeah. hours it's it's okay. in the middle of the state but you know where it, you've heard of it before i can't say i've even heard of carmel indiana Oh yeah, it's it's Amazing. near it's near Indianapolis. Okay, oh, oh, I've been there. So what's my re- what's my excuse? <laughs> Carmel. Okay. Uh, all right, great. So miniatures, miniaturist, uh, couldn't be more on board. Yes. What are the other two? Um, this might sound weird. Opera singer. No, it's great. Um, I love the idea of an art form that is very skillful and that you'd feel like 
really accomplished about doing, but it's not like mass, mass entertainment. So you might yeah. be able to keep a little bit more of a low profile. Absolutely. I think you've nailed it. <laughs> yeah, that's niche. what I'm looking for. <laughs> niche entertainment. <laughs> exactly. Um, I would like to have some sort of useful skill like environmental law or something like sure let's say environmental lawyer okay. like I just Love like it. the idea of I'm really good at something where I would feel like I was making a difference on a yes. daily basis 100%. which I do not always feel as a uh-huh. podcaster same 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 <laughs> so same same okay great environmental lawyer love it Okay, I, you, we're almost done. You only have two more categories. I'm so excited for you. I hope that this hasn't been too painful. No. Um, second to last category, let's do... I want to see what you say about this because we haven't talked about music at all. Three like musicians, except you talked about Taylor Swift. Um, <laughs> but three musicians that can, basically they're going, to be, uh, they're going to be creating a soundtrack of your life. So it's brand new music Ooh. and it's like, you know, three people, they can be composers, they can be singer-songwriters, like a band, whatever, that you would love to hear sort of like their interpretation of like, you know, you traveling somewhere or you sitting and, you know, sort of staring out the window. Like what would that, who would you like to kind of customize stuff for, for you? Oh gosh, we're going to, this is going to bring me back to like my aughts indie Great. rock phase. Great. So... There are a few candidates that might all be sort of the same answer, <laughs> but um, I'm going to say there's a band called Foxtrot that mm-hmm. was very important to me when I was sure. younger, and they recently did a reunion uh, that I wasn't uh, unable to go to the New York show because I was home alone with the toddler that weekend and I'm just a little bit bitter about it but Uh (laughs) um they're just like their sound is very warm and uh but also pensive and Mm -hmm. I just I just love they got some good happy sad going on yeah I, I like that happy sad combination yeah me too uh this might be a little bit more just sad and also they've gotten huge but the national oh yeah I just love to walk around the city and just have yes. like seven national albums queued up. Um, yes. I, I just did that walking around in my neighborhood. Oh my gosh, it feels so good. And it's like I'm sad, but, you know, I, in a nice way and like a warm, yeah. comforting way. Um, it yes. makes me feel very wistful, which I like. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to say Frightened Rabbit, which is the band that I put on and I just sob while I'm walking around the city. That seems too sad. No, but he's still ha- well. It's also even more sad now. Um, yeah, that no like, after him th- dying feels so fresh in a way. We're like, and I think I've said this before. Um, that's the first like musical artist that I finally understood how personally people take someone dying, like yes. that they don't know a celebrity dying. I was like really, really messed up about it. Like yes. messed a messed up adult about it. Like. Same. Really, really disturbed. So sad. So like, why? You know, you have that, that feeling of like, I, f- I thought he was working through everything through the music. Like he's so like, and I still, and I'm finally back now where I can listen to the music, and it will still make me cry. Super happy, sad music. Yeah, yeah. It was such a. I don't know why. When you said Foxtrot, I was so wondering. Hard. I was like, I wonder if she's going to say anything about Frightened Rabbit. Like, I'm curious. Oh my gosh! No, after that news came in, I. And yeah, it's the only time I've ever done this. I was like, I need to go on a walk. 
I'm like squalling baby at home with my husband. I like yeah. took a long walk and listened and yeah. cried for like an yeah. hour. I've never done that before. It was yeah. just, it yeah, it f- felt very, like we had all gotten to know that side of him through his music and maybe yeah. related to a lot of it. And yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that is. Uh, so I would pick him, but I would, yeah. but I, but, I, but there, that might not be a good decision. But I still would. <laughs> I'm just thinking in terms of like, would I really be able to handle crying that much no. on a day to day basis? I You're always right. cry. It's like a button that just like the yeah. tears start coming out. <laughs> um, it's like automatic. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to I'm trying to like comb for something that's a little bit different that might yeah. hit the. Ooh, this is this is a throwback too. But uh, camera obscura. Oh sure, yeah, yeah. that's great. Which which also gives me the happy sads. I don't want just happy music. It has to be like atmospheric yeah. happy sad. Wistful music. wistful is a great word. Yeah. yeah, definitely, definitely. Like I always say, I love songs that make me feel like they kind of break your heart and then mend it at the same time, yeah. or make you feel like there's hope for humanity. Like yeah, we we all under this song tells us, even though the words aren't about this, but just the melody and the chorus and like the way the harmonies work. Somehow it's like reminding us that we are so fucked up as a species, but like we are capable of this. And if we yeah. are capable of this, then what, you know? Yeah, that's exactly it. It gives you that like sort of that shimmer amid yeah. the amid the sadness. Yeah. You're like there's yeah. still something sort of sparkly and beautiful about yeah. the world that made this. Totally. Yeah. Totally. That's beautiful. Uh, it seems like we have the same taste in music. Okay. Um, yeah. Let me just boil that down to its simplest, uh, <laughs> its simplest fact. Um, okay. Last one is let's do... I mean, I'm curious to hear what you will say about this. It's a go-to, but are there are there three his, like places and times in history that you would love to sort of see? Maybe not even love. Maybe it's not, like, not necessarily pleasant. But like, is there a part of you that's like... I do want to see what this is literally actually like. Um, mm. I've got you in a safety bubble. You're not going to get you know, killed <laughs> or anything else. Um, yeah. Um, oh, gosh, so many. I think my mind immediately just goes to this because it feels so distant, but is like ingrained into my head from like my world history textbook. It's sure. just like, you know, the f- the first civilizations and like oh, yeah. the the fertile crescent or whatever. Yeah, you know, sure. Mesopotamia. Like what... I was always so fascinated by just like how did people live in a time when, you know, we don't really have a good understanding yeah. through written documents yeah. or anything of what yes. they were living like. But they were living in a way that would be sort of recognizable to us. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I love that answer. That's great. Early cities. I think um, also I've always been fascinated by like Byzantium, mm-hmm. which similarly is like feels recognizable but also alien to me um and i don't think that it's like heavily covered in american history education education maybe partly because it's not quite in that like greco-roman yes western europe tradition that tends Mm -hmm. to somehow dictate everything it's a little bit outside of it um love it the aesthetics are so like cool and yes um, unusual yeah definitely that and um, I think like medieval England, yeah, and just see what it was actually like because I there are so many just stereotypes or, or like yes. assumptions about what it was like. I guess. Yeah, agreed, 
Agreed. Yeah, when something's been sort of hashed out in art like so much that it feels like you stop you 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 know that it was real but at the same time like you've been so flooded with things that only represent it that it starts to feel like maybe it was always just made up <laughs> exactly yeah you know? it's like either the thing that I and never really felt like was represented or super represented but was any of it based yeah. in anything real yeah yeah great okay uh give me a number between one and ten um, I really dragged that out for something extremely basic. I was trying I mean, to think well, of I'm to like, get super a fancy. Between one and ten, I can't. <laughs> uh, four. Great. Okay. While I uh, calculate your one hundred percent guaranteed alternate universe bash future, <laughs> will you please remind people where they can find you, what they should be checking out, and all that good stuff, which translates to will you vamp for me while I quickly do this? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Great. So uh with Emma Gray, I co-host a Bachelor recap podcast called Love to See It. You can find it wherever you get podcasts. Uh, we also have a Substack newsletter podcast. We send out emails. We do podcasts about things that aren't The Bachelor. Um, that's called Rich Text on Substack. Uh, you can also find me on Instagram and Twitter at Claire E. Fallon, even though I never tweet anymore. And soon I guess I won't be able to because of Elon Musk. I know. Is that really going to happen? Talk about something like that's been happened. dangling out there for so long that I'm always ready for to be like, it's the day before and Elon Musk has gone to the moon instead. Like, that's I mean, where he lives now. <laughs> I would just love it if he would go to the moon instead of doing literally anything that he's yeah. doing. Yeah. But I'm prepared for wild. Twitter to go away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, oh, I just realized I forgot to do this last one. Okay, great. That's good because you don't have an, a shack. You have an apartment. Okay. <laughs> I want to uh, congratulate you because that apartment is, in fact, in Paris. Uh, beautiful Parisian apartment. Don't mind if I do. Mm. Perhaps some of that has come. Like, it's very earned in that uh, you are also an environmental lawyer. And <sighs> listen, uh, Paris has been making some fantastic changes. Talk about it's so embarrassing when a city that old finds ways to innovate and finds ways to, like, be more environmental. And, like, these, like, the newer cities in America that ha in some ways it would be so much easier. We're yeah. like, what? No. Do you know how old and long the city is? been doing things like this it's like like a hundred you've been around a hundred years you asshole <laughs> yeah uh beautiful parisian apartment but also like a gateway into both a harry potter verse and mesopotamia what? so here you have these other adventures that you can go on uh, as you see fit um all of this happening with uh foxtrot uh soundtrack well, as long as we're talking about names that also are wild animals, you will be able to witness Virginia Woolf at work. <laughs> oh, this is like I've designed this, this personally phenomenal. for myself. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> endless cheeseburgers. Endless <laughs> zero ramification cheeseburgers with James McAvoy's character from Penelope. Oh. Adorable. Oh, my God. Uh, adorable. I'm just feeling a glow. Yeah, coming off me. Let it just bask in it. Just bask in it. And I'll tell you what. I'm going to be a miniaturist, so you could come <laughs> and visit me 
in my I miniature admit, world. There was a little pang that I'm not a miniaturist, but I know I wanted it really bad for you. It's, it's I'll take the, that I'm, I'll take it for both of us. It's good that I'm doing the work um, I as I as I eat all of my cheeseburgers. Yeah, because I'm, cheeseburgers in this reality are not coming from anything yeah, environmental. They're it's being incompat- made. It, it's compatible in this world with me still being a passionate world, defender of the environment. Yeah. In this yeah. world, it's possible that cheeseburgers are like recycled fossil fuel. <laughs> like somehow it's like, did you know these cheeseburgers are made from old plastic flip flops they find on the beach? And they're delicious. They're actually they actually taste like cows and beyond and burgers. Our bodies break them no. down and then yeah. yeah, it's perfect. It's like it's like less than zero negative footprint. It's like ne- <laughs> negative carbon footprint. Um this has been so fun, Claire. Thank you so much. Oh, thank uh, you so much. What for a pleasure. Me. I feel like I talked less about your teenage years with you than perhaps I tend to in general, but I, w- I really was excited to get into HuffPost and publishing world. So thanks for indulging me on that. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. Everyone, what are you doing? St- I want you to stop what you're doing as soon as I say goodbye. Go subscribe <laughs> to these other podcasts and Substacks, and I'll talk to you next week. The show is produced by Julian Burrell and Christian Duenas. And as always, the JV Club theme song is Back Before We Were Brittle by the amazing Say Hi. Remember when we could save kittens from trees? Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.